0: Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall podcast. It is January fifth, two thousand twenty-two. So that means we are one day away from the anniversary of the insurrection that took place one year minus a day ago on Capitol Hill. About which you don't need me to tell you additional details. But we're one year, we're one year, uh, one year past. And if you if you didn't see it yesterday, Donald Trump had actually scheduled and he had scheduled this for, you know, it had been on the books for the last, I think, two or three weeks. He had scheduled essentially an anniversary celebration of Jan 6th. He was going to have a press conference down in Mar-a-Lago to talk about it. And uh, this was nominally going to be... uh, you know ranting about the investigative committee uh the terrible treatment of the of the insurrectionists blah 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 and then just yesterday he announced with you know various excuses and everything uh that he's canceling it and we got some follow on reporting later in the evening not terribly surprisingly that a lot of his supporters you know the 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 diehards and pretty you know kind of pro insurrection people thought this was a really bad idea um and i think they were right on a, on a few on a few different fronts so he canceled it and i think the I, I think for those people i don't think the idea was so much that they thought it was legally a bad idea although if i were the, i mean you know where do you start here right i mean if you're if you were someone representing donald trump or various other people uh tied with this it wouldn't wouldn't seem like a great great idea but i think what they worried about was just how radical he has become on this. And when he, you know, when he rants on OANN or Newsmax or one of his rallies or something like that about how, you know, justice for the insurrectionists and all that kind of stuff, that doesn't really, that news doesn't really circulate that much. His supporters hear it. But it's just it's it's not headline news and stuff like that. And it actually raises an interesting question about this whole public conversation we've been having for years now about, you know, do you amplify quote unquote Trump? You know, did it make sense for them to kick him off Twitter? All that kind of stuff. And it it made me well, let me let me get to the to the main point here. I think a lot of those people realize that. It's not going to be helpful to have him out there on January 6th, in essence, saying that the insurrection was great or maybe maybe done by Antifa or, you know, whatever he's going to say, because that's going to not go over terribly well. But as a secondary matter, though, it did make me think about has it really helped? having his messages you know not aired for public exposure to the greater public and this is this is a basic question that that in a different guise i i've been talking about forever because i actually think it is i think in some ways it's a mistake not because of some free speech stuff but because his people are hearing his stuff loud and clear but most of the country is not which in some ways kind of the best of both worlds for him you know, Trump is not losing power. He's not losing a hold over his people and not just his diehards, also the, you know, the, the Republicans in Congress who may think he's a lunatic, but still, you know, follow him, you know, lockstep. So that is going on. Uh, we, we, so we've got uh, January 6th, uh, insurrection type stuff to talk about. We've also got some new maneuvering with Joe Manchin, with the filibuster and maybe with the build back better agenda, and we've also got this omicron thing, which is uh y- you know we-, we now have we now have a pretty significant amount of evidence that the omicron variant, in addition to people getting milder forms of the infection because most people have some level of immunity now, that it actually does seem less pathogenic than Delta. It makes people, on average, less sick. That doesn't mean not sick. I just did this post uh yesterday about this, you know, kind of anti-vax Republican out in out in California, uh, activist, you know, former uh candidate for office, 46-year-old woman, seemingly in good health, dead from COVID, unvaccinated. So it's still very serious, but it is, again, on average, it's hospitalizing fewer people, which is a godsend and we'll, you know, we need to take godsends where we can get them because it is crazy infectious. And just this morning I was dealing with, um, logistics tied to how the outbreak in the New York area is, is, you know, uh, in a minor way, even upending, you know, uh, my day-to-day activities. And just to be clear, every, everybody in my orbit, I think is fine, but it's, it's, uh, it's really turning things upside down. And I think I saw, um, I think I saw a a news report that like the Chicago schools have have temporarily closed, not because of you know kind of like a school closure, just because they they I think maybe there the teachers are are refusing to go in. They say it's not safe. Other other school districts are just having to close for a few days because too many people are out. You know you can you can have this kind of principle. The schools can uh, you know. uh, principal, not in the principle of school uh, sense. You never, you can have uh, an axiom. Schools are never going to close, but if if uh, two thirds of the teachers are out sick, you kind of, it is what it is. So those are all things we're going to discuss. Uh, let me remind you. That uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee, uh, the best stuff in the world. You can get it at grady'scoldbrew.com with promo code TPM. You can get 25% off your order at grady'scoldbrew.com. So, uh, Kate Riga, what is up?
1: So, tomorrow we have the January 6th anniversary. Um, you know, it's weird. It's been weird to come back from kind of the holiday break back into full-fledged work, which I think is always an odd experience for pretty much everyone. But then to remember, you know, tomorrow is the anniversary of this this big, horrible thing that happened. And in some ways, Congress is acting a lot... Well, Democrats in Congress are kind of treating it almost like a Memorial Day type thing. Like tomorrow, there are events planned all day where lawmakers will kind of share their reminiscences and there'll be a prayer vigil on the steps and Things like that to kind of mark the occasion. Um, You know, there was a hearing today before the Senate Rules Committee that I watched with the uh, chief of the Capitol Police that was all about the, you know, security breach and hardness of windows and stuff like that. And uh, yesterday, the Capitol Police Board gave a briefing about ways the force had kind of improved itself since last year. But all of those things feel like they're missing or avoiding the worst part of January 6th, which is that. It was much more a beginning than an end, that it feels like treating it like this kind of one-off violent event it seems to me to miss the most important part of it, which is that in a lot of ways, it's now looking like it was, you know, a rehearsal or practice or one step in something that we're going to be facing for a long time, and particularly as we roll into the next election. So there is this weird sense of discordance that I've been feeling about it. I wonder where your your head is about it.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, obviously, we have, you know, a significant chunk, maybe the majority of one of the two parties who are commemorating it, Mm -hmm. you know, um, which that is an, obviously a whole other thing. And uh, obviously, Democrats, for lots of good reasons, Democrats and just kind of non-insurrectionists, um, want to commemorate it in the way that we treat, you know, commemorate other tragic events. But as you say, th- there's a, there's an aesthetic and a, a manner in which you commemorate things in the past, you know, kind of, Tra- tragic things. You kind of bring everybody together and there's a, there's a tone. But as you say, uh, even if it is not a, a rehearsal per se, even if we don't, you know, we don't know the future, the key point is that a lot of people still think it's good. And so it is contested ground. I mean, you know, one of the things about, you know, as the years have gone, on, as have gone on, it has diminished. But for a long time, the anniversary of John Kennedy's assassination was a little like that. Right? Kind of everybody, everybody, it was a big deal when it was 10, 20 years. I mean, now it's it's um it's more than more than half century. Uh obviously in 9-11. But those are those are not contested things. There was obviously controversy with 9-11, but pretty broad cross-section of the American public could agree it wasn't a good thing. Right? And that's not the case here. So you're right, there is this uh mismatch where on the one hand we want to you know, commemorate the awfulness of it, but we also, rather than rather than a tone of of mourning, you need something more like a, a war footing, because it's not done, and and it is it is still a wound that is that is not closed. It is it is um, it is still an open question whether that story is done, right. whether the, whether that is the beginning or something like that. And I agree with you, and I and I, I do wonder where are we on what the um, what the what the uh, uh, special committee has planned
1: for tomorrow? That I don't know. I don't know if they have anything planned specifically for tomorrow. The last I saw from them is that they were planning to do uh, televised hearings. Prime during time. Prime hearings. time. Yeah. yeah,
0: I saw that. I think at one point they had there was at least the idea that they were going to do, you know, going to do a press con, you know, like mm. announce some stuff. I I have lost track of whether that is. Um,
1: it really is hard to keep it in your head.
0: <laughs> yeah, whether that's still the case, I don't. You know, a lot of things. Obviously, there there uh, was a very big snowstorm in DC a couple of days ago. We right. have Omicron, and that's kind of locked things down a bit. So I don't know if that was uh, if that was shifted. I th- I think at one point the idea was that you know the whole reason that Donald Trump had announced that you know kind of victory celebration was to was to sort of barge in on the news cycle about whatever. The committee people announced. Um, so I guess that's still an open.
1: An yeah, op- I know. Merrick Garland is slated to talk tomorrow um, about January sixth stuff. So we'll watch that. But you know, and part of the problem here, I think, for the weird spot that Democrats are in, you know, and putting aside, it, we should say before we put it aside, you know, most Republicans are opting out of the kind of. Uh, uh, memorializing events tomorrow. Some have said, oh, well, Democrats are politicizing it as if it wasn't a deeply political thing to begin with. Um, but so then it leaves Democrats in this weird spot where I think it's hard to adopt this position of urgency tied to January 6th when the kind of legislative future of the the legislation that would kind of fix some of these problems is just so hopelessly you know, caught in the mud right now. And so that's something that Schumer tried to open this week doing, saying, you know, January 6th just kind of heightens the urgency of passing these democratic reforms to make sure that this doesn't spread, that this doesn't happen again, which I think is a a fairly compelling message. And then you run into the real-life obstacle of Joe Manchin once again. So Schumer set a hard date. He said, we're going to vote on rule changes on or by January 17th, Martin Luther King Day. And then, Manchin basically gave, he's doing this thing where he's only doing one gaggle per day because of the variant. So kind of got to get all his, his squishy quotes out at once. But so that happened yesterday where people asked him, you know, where are you on the filibuster? We know you're having all these conversations, blah, blah, blah. And he basically said, it's his absolute preference to pass rule changes with Republican buy-in. He said he is worried about a carve-out because then people come back and they eat the whole turkey. Laughed heartily at his own wit there. Um, He did mention some specifics, some of it totally unsurprising. We know they've been talking about the talking filibuster since Joe Biden took office, basically. He did mention um, one thing that's being brought up is having two-thirds of people voting have to... Vote on it instead of two thirds of the whole chamber. So that would be a way of potentially lowering the 60 vote threshold.
0: And I and I would I would assume there, too, that it that gets you that makes you keep a little more skin in the game in as much as you've got the Republicans have to be able to get a lot of get people on the floor at shortish notice or else um, Democrats could have a thing where you know all 50 of them are there and there's only 20 Republicans and then they have enough to to do it so it does that does change it a bit not a lot but a exactly
1: bit. it's something it's small you know I've n- never really been at the hill during kind of a normal work day when there are so few of one party there but you know it's something of course it was totally non-committal on all of it and said that he, it's important to him to keep having conversations because Republicans and Democrats, should, you know, it's the same kind of stuff he's been saying for forever. Um, honestly, the only thing that kind of gave me any moment of pause in what feels like an exercise we've conducted about 800 times by now is I'm sure our listeners saw McConnell's quote saying, you know, it's, it's, Calling it radical, calling it, coming out very strongly against filibuster reform, which almost made me think maybe they're making more progress than it looks like if he feels the need to come down like a hammer. Cause if I was him, I would just stay out of it. Like I wouldn't make myself a foil in this situation when Manchin is filling that role perfectly well himself.
0: Yeah. That, that was, that was sort of my, um, that was sort of my take too, that it was. It was him saying something that made me think, okay, he at least thinks it's, he at least thinks it's enough that he needs to kind of, you know, cart out the alt- artillery and, you know, fire off a few shots or something like that. Do you have any sense of, in these meetings he has, <laughs> like, I try to imagine these meetings, like, I who, I don't know if it's Elizabeth Warren or or. Warner or whoever, but they're sitting down and say, well, "What about this? What about that?" And you know, is Mansion like actually getting into it about different versions of the talking filibuster, or is he doing some version of you know some slightly more slightly more uh bald version of his press conferences of like no how, no do, and all this kind you know all this kind of stuff? I mean, just, like I have a hard time like. You need something to talk about to have meetings. And I'm just curious if there is kind of anything they are talking about.
1: Well, I think they've tried a bunch of different kind of approaches. For a while, it was this group of lawmakers that was... Like Klobuchar, Merkley, King, Tim Kaine, who were kind of the ambassadors to Mansion and who would accompany him on these meetings with Republicans. And I think that's where they kind of had conversations about like, you know, everyone can agree this and it doesn't really work well. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, there's comedy. We agree. And then doesn't go a lot further past there. And then in recent weeks, it became more the bringing in outside rule experts to talk about the history of the filibuster and I think trying to convince him it's not this kind of stalwart, uh, long time institution of a perfectly working Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so they brought them in and to talk about different reforms and, and things like that. But the, the problem with Manchin is he's he's not really saying anything very different than a year ago before, presumably, he was attending meetings where they were, he was being presented the finer points of the filibuster. So it's kind of his retention level is hard to gauge from these comments, <laughs> I would say.
0: Well, it's also, and this is, this is, this is sort of the, the the purgatory of dealing with Joe Manchin that look, he's not a detail guy to put it mildly. He's not like steeped in the history of anything and this is all just gut sense on a given day and whatever his pals talk to him about over the weekend. So it is, it is weird and kind of perverse to be walking, you know, to bring in the sort of what, you know, who do they bring in the sort of the, the, the Harvard poli sci professor who's the world, you know, uh, authority on parliamentary procedure to talk to Joe Manchin Right. I mean, it, it it's all kind of a joke since since uh, there's kind of nothing here, e- even if you even if you take. Obviously, I'm not on the same political wavelength as Joe Manchin, but there are people who kind of end up in the same place who are at least operating at a higher you know, wattage level or something like that, or just at a seriousness level. This isn't, I, I don't, I don't really make this about, you know, intelligence and whatever that amounts to just like, like, are you really kind of sweating the details and thinking it through? And none of that applies to this guy. So kind of, it, it is, like I said, it's a bit perverse to be, but like, you know, he's got the vote.
1: The thing that's odd to me, and I'm curious to hear what you think about this, is that I wasn't surprised that Schumer set a hard deadline for voting on filibuster changes because at some point, you know, if you let Manchin determine the timeline, as we've seen from the reconciliation bill, it will probably never happen. But he's making this big push connected to January sixth and trying to get emotional resonance from that—an emotional reson- resonance that presumably Manchin and Cinema have as people who experienced it firsthand. Right? Why then set your deadline? For 11 days after January 6th, when whatever emotional punch that day will have, will have faded. You know, and part of me was like, well, maybe wants more time to convince them. I mean, but what arguments are they going to pull out in these next two weeks that haven't been trotted out already? You know, I can't say it made a, t- a ton of sense to me. I'm wondering if you see any more clarity in it than I do.
0: Well, w- one thing that jumps out to me is just obviously, as we know, it's, it's Martin Luther King Day and... Uh, Voting rights and democracy protection is not is 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 obviously not only a an African American issue, but it has a profound resonance, a, a profound and unique resonance for for African Americans. The history of voting rights. So I do, and and certainly in 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 the context of of uh, democratic coalitional politics, that's a that's a potent thing. So I think that has my sense is that has obviously a lot of potency on its own both in deep substantive ways and also coalitional ways um and then the other is and again it's just how the senate works is such a weird thing to 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 unravel and understand but you do have this this holiday break where everything is kind of in you know kind of locked in amber and i would assume they think to kind of come from locked in amber to you know, kind of January third to January sixth, it's it's just no, not enough time to to build up anything, and so you know you kind of get the build up on January sixth, then you say kind of it's coming, it's ten days, and you know, I agree with you. It kind of um, who knows that that's my that's my sense. I I would say that I at least as I understand this that that Schumer is saying, look, we're going to vote on a. He's saying they're going to vote on a rules change, not the, he's not just saying they're going to vote on the, on, the, on the For the People Act. They're going to vote on, I guess, something that is basically a voting rights exception for the filibuster, and that that's just going to happen. And Joe Manchin's going to have to make a decision whether he says no, and whether uh, Kirsten Cinema votes against that. And I think that's great, because, you know, obviously, I hope they, they decide not to vote against it. But what is a kind of an you know, an abiding dimension of the current brokenness of the Senate, the current stasis that we are in as a country politically, is that people don't have to put their name on the line. And, you know, way back to when I was kind of writing and fiddling around doing stuff about Social Security 15, 16, 17 years ago, one of the things I was working with is that there is, a, there is an iron law of legislative politics. And that is everyone wants safety in numbers. It is always in the interests of, of almost all legislators to just leave it a little unclear where they are, right? Kind of, you know, you see news reports like, well, Democrats don't support this or Republicans aren't supporting this. And the public kind of gets this, oh, Republican, it's not one person, it's, it's, it's Republicans, right? And, and it's sort of, it's diffuse, and uh, because of, you know, because of the so, so it's really important to kind of get it like, OK, I get that Democrats, quote unquote, but what about you? Where are you on this? You know, to kind of focus that light in on individual people. That is just good journalism and good public accountability. And because of the unique dynamics of this period we're in, it kind of we all know it's Joe Manchin. Right. But even with all our, you know, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. But even with all that, all this kind of squiggliness and things not coming down to a vote mean that you know that Joe Manchin has concerns or he wants this or he wants that. So kind of what? Like it's too, it's fuzzy. And so it's really good to say like, look, we decided we're all going to vote. And so what's your vote? Got, you got it. You got to have concerns. But do you have concerns, and you're going to vote for it, or you're going to vote no? Let's just hear it, and that is that is just very powerful. And maybe it'll be powerful in a way that won't won't um, won't affect things. Maybe you know th- won't affect things in the sense it won't change things. But at least we'll say when it came down to it, Joe Manchin, when asked when you know when when he needed to make a decision about should we have an exception to the filibuster for voting rights legislation, he said no. That is just a clarity that is very powerful and very good to have, even if it doesn't leverage a better outcome. It's just important in a civic and democratic sense to know where people stand.
1: Yeah. And I guess to some degree, holding this vote a bit later ended up being wise because we've had some Democratic senators uh, run into obstacles such as Tim Kane being stuck on the highway for 27 <laughs> hours on his way to the Capitol. <laughs> now,
0: what happened with, with, does that mean like he was just in a perfect, in a, in a, like a permanent traffic chain and just had to sleep in the car? Like what, what happened yeah, there?
1: Yeah. He said, uh, he would blast his heat for a few minutes so he could fall asleep for like a half hour before the car got too cold again. Uh, he said all that he had had to eat and drink, um, Was an orange given to him by a family that was coming back from Christmas. So they had some food in their car that they gave out to people and uh, a Dr. Pepper. So, I mean, it was just absolute, you know, madness, kind of this perfect storm of the DC, Virginia area actually getting just a lot of snow and a lot more snow than these areas are kind of accustomed to getting. And then a bunch of trucks ran into each other and created a huge traffic jam. And there are just way too many cars on the highway to begin with. So, you know, I'm still surprised there wasn't more deadly fallout from that. Cause it, I mean, you yeah, think I, in diabetics, babies, you would just think there'd be all kinds of people who would really suffer. Just
0: people in generally fra- fragile health. If you, what if you're just running out of gas and it's like yep. 30 degrees? I mean, that's, you know, even, even, um, you know, you should be able to be in your car and the exhaust doesn't kind of filter back into the car, but kind of like running your car for a while and falling asleep, you know, you kind of, you multiply that scenario over thousands or tens of thousands right. of people that's not great right no I'm, yeah. i i'm su- i'm surprised too that's uh, so i guess it was just like a mix of of traffic jam people can't plow the road and just tons of cars are out there in right. snow and just no one's moving and that's it is what yeah. it is yeah that's that's nuts
1: all which culminated in i don't know if you saw but the most ill-timed scheduled tweet ever coming from the vice president's account where it was some um, you know cheerleader you know thanks to the Biden Harris administration uh, infrastructure improvements, we got America moving again. And you're like, oh no, not didn't. today. Not yeah, today. I didn't see
0: that. Didn't see that. I'm surprised that doesn't that should that should turn into one of those we talked to 35 staffers exactly. articles in the in the Washington Post, like one of our one of our listeners was asking us about a couple yep. of weeks ago. So yeah. Yeah.
1: So let's uh Change topics quickly. We're going to do a, a little redistricting check on checkup. Um, I did some reporting on this over the holiday break because for anyone who found themselves unable to tear themselves away from Twitter over the holiday, there was a pretty heated debate going on in redistricting slash gerrymandering Twitter that that special niche about if Democrats are actually doing better in redistricting than everybody thought they would. And basically, this started with a data for progress post saying there will actually be more Biden leaning seats after this round of redistricting than there was before. It, things ended up going a lot better for Democrats and anticipated. And then there was a, a kind of rebuttal on the election uh, law blog that said, well, that's not really true if you use these other metrics, which are better and more precise and Republicans still have the clear advantage, blah, blah, blah. So basically, I just kind of took this and went and asked redistricting people about it, Um, you know, including Dave Wasserman, probably the, the crowned king of redistricting Twitter. And basically what I found was this. It's true that Republicans are not going into the midterms with like a landslide seat advantage. They have not, in short, kind of won the 2022 election. No question before anyone's cast a vote, which is something that people were genuinely worried about going into this. And I think the reason why is that, first of all, we have to remember, Republicans pretty much controlled a lot of this process last decade, too. So the gains were always going to be somewhat modest when they've already had a chance to carve up the maps to their greatest advantage. And then second of all, there is kind of a new factor in this redistricting cycle that has taken up a lot of their energy and focus, which is explosive demographic growth in states that they currently control. So they needed to channel a lot of their attention into keeping that power from growing in the future, rather than going after Democratic seats to flip. So, you know, that's most clear in Texas, where they're probably only going to pick up two seats, but they're also turning a lot of blue trending seats, especially in the suburbs outside of the city areas, which are becoming much younger and voters of color are, are going there in big numbers. They're turning those districts from maybe a Trump plus three to a Trump plus 20 to make sure that those communities don't vote with the power that they should rightfully have. So, you know, it's kind of the good news for Democrats is maybe they're going into 2022 with a less hostile map than we once were worried about. But it pretty much all comes at the expense of demographic change that makes states like Texas and Georgia very, very competitive if Republicans are not kind of tilting the scales to make sure that they keep their dominance there, even when the population is changing very quickly.
0: Right. I mean, there's, there's always, as you suggest, there's always this issue of, uh, you know, uh, districts, gerrymanders are kind of like food. They go bad, right? Mm-hmm. They kind of – they, they – even if the actual politics and population demographics of an area are not shifting in one direction or another, they're just shifting. They're just, you know, the kind of like you, you fine-tuned it circa 2010. Now things have moved around and you need to kind of adjust it and fine-tune it. So it sounds like what you're saying is that, uh, you know, they were in control then, they're in control now. And so they've needed to kind of do an upgrade, but they, you know, they, 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 they you know, refreshed it, but it's not dramatically different from what they you know what they did previously and i and and that's certainly a point that the 2010 gerrymanders were you know profoundly important um in historical terms because they just i mean a they were they were very successful um it's not like democrats weren't paying attention but it's not like it is now we're kind of you know ever all democrats know about this and they're they're at least focused on it if they're if what they can do about it is limited and now, do you one thing that has come up in recent months is they'll say, well, you know, this state here, uh, they could have really pushed it, you know, Republican controlled state and they could have really pushed it to the max, but they didn't. I think I remember that like Indiana was a case like this. Mm-hmm. That basically, they kind of left things more or less as they were, whereas if they really wanted to be aggressive, they could have maybe knocked off one or two Democratic seats. And I think there were. A number of states like that. In some cases, uh, that's because you know sometimes politicians just end up acting more like incumbents. Why, you know, why shake the boat? I got my seat. You got your seat. Why, why complicate things? In some cases, I think that the state legislatures are kind of thinking like, do we really want to be in court for the next like four years? Right. Or we just kind of do something a little more normal. Do you have a global sense? of to the extent that those kinds of things played into this, which of those things it was, like states that could have, you know, kind of added a seat or two here and there that didn't,
1: why not? Yeah. So I think in some places it's very much because they're going to push it as far as the court will let them get away with. And there's the risk that if you go too hard, even say a conservative slanted court is going to be like, guys, come on, we can't, uphold this map. You know, that's been the debate in Florida particularly, um, kind of how egregious of a gerrymander that court will let them get away with. And as we're seeing already, you know, in North Carolina and Ohio, those maps are tangled up in litigation. And there's a a very good chance that they're going to get shot down. And Democrats are going to end up getting five seats out of those those two states. So I think that is a lot of the reason. I think there's also, to some degree, you don't want your egregious gerrymander to kind of be the one that attracts national scrutiny and becomes the story. You want yours right. to be just non-egregious enough that it floats yeah, with the pack. Yeah, you're looking for like a
0: Goldilocks kind of gerrymander. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's, right. it's, it's funny too, because I think one of the, I'm sort of uh, inferring a bit here about a state like Indiana, that in some cases, a state like Indiana, very conservative state, not like not maybe extremely conservative but consistently very conservative. Republicans call the shots in Indiana. And in some ways that can that can produce a more get-along go-along um, attitude than you might have in a Wisconsin or in Ohio. They're states that are you know closely divided and 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 maybe less so in Ohio now but kind of each party thinks that one more election, and the, you know it'll be theirs, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, it seems like you know that's playing in some of these cases, and then in other cases, there are state laws that I think they have, I think they have something on the books in Florida that, in theory, says you can't do partisan gerrymandering, mm-hmm. but. Uh, They also have a very conservative state Supreme Court now. So there's been this kind of open question of like, yeah, it says that, but like it's up to the, it's up to the Supreme Court. So you have things like that, that um, have been, have been uh, wild cards. What's the status of New York state people? This is one thing that has kind of uh, been out there for a while that uh, New York state has, somehow or another they had they had finally done a thing where they were getting rid of gerrymandering and a lot of democrats were saying you know what let's undo that like mm-hmm. why are, you know why are we letting all the red states do these cra- cr- uh, crazy gerrymanders and new york is still kind of you know set to play at fear what's the status
1: in new york state what's happening there yeah last i checked in there they were still in kind of a preliminary stage where they were kind of going through the motions of doing this more like you say uh a, a kind of a fix to the partisan gerrymandering thing, but it was pretty clear the legislature was probably going to override that and do their own thing anyway. And in some part, I think that's because Democrats just have very, very few states where they can yank back seats. And New York is definitely the biggest source of where they can get that from. Um, Illinois is the other. But Democrats have pretty much unilaterally actually gone through with redistricting reform. So they've already kind of given up you know, it's hard. I say I was going to say giving up weapons, but I mean, I, I want to make it clear redistricting reform is good and every state should do it, but they've just given up chances to eke out, you know, Dave Wasserman told me as many as 10 seats from blue states because those states have independent commissions now that are drawing fair maps and re- Republicans just haven't done it. So there's a really unequal kind of firing power there. And then in red states that kind of have nominally adopted reform, like you mentioned, Florida. The other one that I think this cycle is so stark is um, Ohio because they passed a rule that a map can only stand for two election cycles if it didn't have bipartisan support when it passed. So Republicans did it their own. They didn't even try to get Democratic buy in. And for them, it's kind of like Ohio is trending redder. So another bite at the apple in two yeah. elections is only going to be good for Republicans. you know? Right,
0: right, 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 right. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, there's, uh, you know, California is the big is the big sort of shining example. And it's also, it's a complicated thing because, you know, reform only affecting one side is not really a reform. It, it, you know, it, it, is, it is not hypocritical to say we should really do this, but it is actually not helping if only one side does it. That actually, right. that, that's just, that just intensifies the effect rather than, you know, oh, we half reformed it. You know, it's kind of like so many, so many things. If you say, you know, oh, we want, uh, you know, uh, disarmament. Well, we got half of disarmament, one side disarmed. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> not – so it, there, there, is, there is not just a pragmatic complexity to it. There's a principled complexity to it. And that, in many ways, is why we need this For the People Act or some version of it that we constantly talk about that is tied up with the filibuster so much, because it's only really going to work if you have a national law. It says you can't do this and at least sets up a framework for what is for what's legit and what's not. I, uh, I think California lost one or two seats mm-hmm. in this in this redistricting, but they still have far and away the most uh, the biggest congressional delegation. And the way that California's geography is set up, you could really go to town on that state if you wanted to. You know, you could have a ton of districts that kind of grab a chunk of of major metro area, and then like slither out into you know in, in into the east and grab a bunch of rural areas, and kind of everybody'd be a Democrat. So it's a you know not a great situation, but it is interesting that it has not ended up quite as perverse as uh, as I guess people expected,
1: right? Okay, let's take a couple of questions quickly. The first is from Dana, who says Although I realize that the Electoral College is probably not going away anytime soon, if we elected the president by popular vote, to what extent would it limit the effectiveness of the types of voter suppression efforts currently being implemented in various Republican controlled states? I thought this was a really interesting question. And actually, a year ago, about the University of Texas did a study on this and basically concluded that the way the Electoral College plays in here is that it is just much more likely versus a popular vote to have elections that are close enough, that there is a small enough margin of votes that can be overturned by judicial or administrative means. Um, They found that the Electoral College today is about 40 times as likely as a national popular vote to generate scenarios in which a small number of ballots in a pivotal unit decides the presidency. And then they found it's twice as likely that a Democratic Electoral College win would result in uh, an outcome that is within about a thousand votes, an easily kind of manipulative outcome than it would be a Republican Electoral College win because of how the system already favors Republicans.
0: Interesting. I mean, one, one sort of subset of this question, which I don't know which people think is most likely, there's one way to do this where you say you would have a federal system, a federal vote. So that you don't have you don't have how many people voted in, in, in Michigan. You know, you, you, that it does that it doesn't work that way. And and critically that you wouldn't have different standards. Right. So you one way to do that basically one way to do this would be to say you truly have a national vote. It's under a common administration of vote. It's under a common set of voting rules. And it's just a national thing. Okay, that's one model. The other model is states still run the elections. States still, you know, we have voter ID. They don't have voter ID. We have vote by mail, blah, 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 blah. And then each each state just sends in a vote total and they get all added up. Now, those two scenarios are very different. In terms of the question, obviously, if if it's all common rules from the federal level, it you know none of it, it doesn't it doesn't matter at all. I I would think in general, it to the extent that you get rid of the electoral college, it just takes a lot of the, you know, if you're uh, you know, Mississippi, are you really going to go to that much trouble to change around your voting? Because, you know, if you're just kind of one, one, you know, one total out of 50 states. So it does shift it. Um, it's, it's a little, it's a bit of a hard question to answer because it seems so far out from any kind of reality that we're near to. And you can see that by like, well, wait, would we have a federal voting system versus a state voting system? That is a little hard to know because it's so hypothetical.
1: Right. Okay. Let's take one more question. This is from Grant who asks if Manchin and Cinema are just acting as heat shields for more Democrats that don't want filibuster reform, but can't say it out loud. Um, It can't be lost on them. How brazen the Republicans are being in opposition to democracy. What else could be holding them up and at least carving out uh, voting rights? So on the first part of the question, whether they're acting as heat shields, I did this whole project that... um, Really, we should get back on the website about where I tracked down where every single Democrat was on the filibuster and those that hadn't said so publicly, I just asked them on the Hill. And my, we kind of grouped them uh, into four bubbles, but which kind of going from those who want to eliminate it altogether on one end of the spectrum and then Mansion and Cinema on the other, and then the people in between being either like the new curious people and then Kind of the reformers. Um, But the thing is, all three of those subsections, except for Mansion and Cinema, have said at the very least, okay, on voting rights, I would do it. Voting rights are important enough that that kind of overcomes my qualms about messing with the Senate rules. Everyone everyone has said that except for Manchin and Cinema. And there's this kind of common wisdom that, oh, it's not just them. There's a small group. There's definitely a group who doesn't love the idea for sure. And they are usually kind of the older institutionalists. But all of them have said at this point that they would get on board, that if McConnell forces their hand, they'll do it. If he is just obstructive and won't work with Democrats on anything, that they'll do it. So it really is just these two, who are kind of still holding out at this point um and they're they really are in a class of their own
0: yeah that that's definitely my sense if if anything, I would even state it more strongly the idea that again they that there's others there who are just don't have the guts to kind of say it, and these two are as you say, kind of like a heat shield, everything I have learned in the last year that is not true that is just not not, not true. As Kate says, there are definitely probably a half dozen senators who are not crazy about the idea and would want some limited carve out or some kind of talking filibuster or something like that. But all of those people are in the model of this isn't working. And if it weren't for Manchin and Cinema, you'd probably have an intra-democratic caucus conversation about what kind of reforms they were all going to vote for. But again, the heat shield model, that's just not the case. And the, the one other thing I would add is that I think it's entirely possible that there are, you know, three, four or five senators who kind of like hope it doesn't come to it. Right. They just just make just feel uncomfortable. Comes to a vote though, they're going to vote for it, I guarantee you. There's just that big difference and those two come on board, it's just it's just a done deal. And again, will they completely get rid of the filibuster, you know, even in that case? Probably not, but that's not necess- that's not even really necessary. There're various ways you could change it that would free things up in a way that I think it would largely cease to be a problem. And again, there's not even, there are some versions of the filibuster that I think would not only be okay, might even be a positive. You know, you can have, you can have frameworks that say, you know, if you want to get on the floor and talk for a few days, okay, great. And, and that does, and there's some, there's some plus to that of saying, um, you know, slow things down, make a bit of a stink, make everybody have to kind of talk about it, not just have it happen, you know, in 24 hours with no discussion or something like that. It's okay to slow things down a bit. You know, the house can do things really fast. It's okay if things are a little slower. The problem we have right now, it's not slow. Nothing ever has to happen. And there's no penalty for the for the minority for slowing things down. You know, one one kind of analogy to this that is interesting is that over the last decade or so, we've had a few times where state legislatures will leave a state. They're trying to stop something and they will a bunch of them will go to another state to prevent a a quorum and that slows things down. Eventually, they got to come back or something happens but it slows things down things things can't just happen lickety-split that's not the end of the world in any case to the main point as kate says the heat shield thing is not true
1: yeah and as to their the second part of the question about their their opposition to a voting rights carve out i don't think it has that much to do about the content i just think it's because they've decided that the way to position themselves as quote-unquote moderate, is quote-unquote bipartisan, quote-unquote independent, is to buck the party in big public, likely to get headline ways. And right now, the things that Democrats care the most about are the reconciliation bill and voting rights. So they've decided to become the thorn in the side of both of those things.
0: Yeah. And and really, carve-outs are silly. You know, voting rights is super, 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 super important. But like, lots of things are important. You know, it, it is kind of arbitrary. Uh, to the extent you're going to reform the thing, you want to put more of the burden on the minority and make it something where you can really gum things up, really slow things down, but not stop them and have it apply generally. Because in reality, there aren't important subjects and not important subjects. It's the federal legislature. Everything is pretty important. Right. Okay, well, uh, tomorrow is like like we said at the at the, at the front, the uh, first anniversary of January sixth insurrection. Uh, we're we're probably going to get some. I suspect we're going to have big pieces come out that have some new revelations, probably from the committee or something like that. It's kind of a logical thing to that that even if there's no formal press conference or something like that. So probably a a, a big news day tomorrow. We will be covering it for you. Remember that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off uh, your order at Grady's com with order code TPM. All right. All right. Later. See you next
1: week. The Josh Marshall podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen.